One of the officers involved told the independent investigator after Gabby's death, quote, I would have done anything to stop it if I would have known that was coming. What happened? What's going on? In a statement, the city of Moab said it believed the officer showed kindness. You want to come stand in the shade? Respect and empathy in their handling of this incident. Get you in the van. Let's get you on your way. All right. The city intends to implement the recommendations of the independent review, which include more domestic violence investigation-related training and legal training to ensure officers understand Utah state laws. The attorneys for Gabby's parents insist their lawsuits are not about money. They're about raising awareness. Gabby's mother, Nicole, recently told the Associated Press, I get people messaging me all the time that they were inspired by her to get out of a relationship. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, I'm going to give you the usual trigger warning. This episode and series may well be triggering, and it will be angry-making, and so listener discretion is advised. Okay, I mentioned in the last episode that I wanted to share the final part of the police review with you, and that's a conclusion, and you'll find it on page 43. Now, I want to read out Captain Ratcliffe's conclusion in full and then break it down. For me, it's important, given that most people, like I said, will read the opening statement and the first few pages, and then they're skipped to the conclusion. And so this is what they're left with. Okay, here we go. This is what Captain Ratcliffe wrote. There's one thing I would like to point out that I believe is applicable to this case, as well as many domestic violence cases. Just because Gabby was determined to be the predominant aggressor as it related to this incident doesn't mean she was a long-term predominant aggressor in this relationship. Oftentimes in cases of domestic violence, the long-term victim gets to a point emotionally where they defend themselves or act out in such a way where law enforcement is summoned. There have been many times in my career where someone who we know from past experience to be a long-term victim of domestic violence gets arrested for committing an act of domestic violence against their long-term abuser. Despite knowing the history of those involved, we have had to make a decision based on the information presented to law enforcement at the time, despite our personal feelings and the known history of the relationship. It's very likely Gabby was a long-time victim of domestic violence, whether that be physically, mentally, and emotionally. Okay, so let's break this down. Now, it's confounding to me that he leads with this first. I mean, firstly, Gabby was not determined to be the predominant aggressor. She was upset and distressed, and she was telling them what happened. It's clear to me that she didn't want to get Brian into trouble, but she did tell them that Brian was stopping her from getting in the van, and there was no further questioning of whose van it was, or what she was fearful of, or of his assault on her. And if the officers, including Captain Ratcliffe, had listened very carefully to what Brian said, within the first five minutes, he disclosed that he assaulted Gabby first. Now, the predominant aggressor law is there for exactly this reason, to establish who the main problem is. The actual victim will be most likely to be truthful, and accept responsibility first off for the things that they've done. Now, they may not be as coherent in their narrative, as they haven't got it all figured out, 
they're most likely upset due to the abuse. Conversely, the abuser will most often be calm. They're calm in the belief that he can swing it his way and he's not upset and no fear is present. This is exactly why there are four required considerations in Utah's law that should be asked about and documented, including the history. Who poses a threat? And who acted in self-defence? And this is what it says in their own manual. Also, in this law, there's no such thing as a short-term or long-term victim or a short-term and long-term predominant aggressor. You must establish who the predominant aggressor is, period. And as part of doing that, as part of the investigation, you must ask questions. The manual is there for a reason. And what Captain Ratcliffe states here flies in the face of the predominant aggressor law. If there is a history, and if the victim was acting in self-defence, you must document it and make it clear what that context is. And you must clearly identify who the threat is. The fact that Gabby posed no threat to Brian but Brian posed a threat to Gabby, was overlooked. Now, in my experience, oftentimes when dual arrests are made, or no arrests, or when the victim has been arrested, it's because the history wasn't asked about, the risk model wasn't used, the officer wasn't trained, the victim and the perpetrator were not asked separately what precipitated the argument or fight, and the officers fall for the man's narrative And almost always the man's narrative goes without challenge. Good practice exists on this, yet rarely is it sought out. And what I will say is that if police continuously identify this as a problem, well, why don't they seek the good practice out? It's there, it's been written by many experts, including myself. I wrote about it in the Blackstone's policing guide called Policing Domestic Violence that I co-authored with two police officers, Simon Letchford and Sharon Stratton, who, just like me, are subject matter experts. Sharon, in fact, now works for the College of Policing in the UK. So my recommendation is to seek out best practice. And my recommendation is that the attending officer should speak with a supervisor and a specialist if they're unsure and also speak with the prosecutor for an early case consult. I also recommend that every police force should have a number of subject matter experts or domestic abuse champions that they can call upon to help problem-solve cases. And the Domestic Violence 101 manual should be read, and joint training is really important. Now, admittedly, the DV 101 manual needs some updating, but the point is that it's there, it exists, and it's not being used and it's not even referenced in this review. In fact, I bet most police officers don't even know it exists. Also, before I return to the conclusion, the other thing I'll say is that if the law isn't working, well then change it. But there's no mention of this tied to the recommendations when there should be. Why not aspire to the gold standard? Coercive control law reform means the totality of what's gone on is taken into consideration. The pattern and not just the incident. And based on our knowledge and analysis of cases, it's so important that the police and the criminal justice system move away from violence models and incidents, and they move to patterns and level of control. It's a failing by law enforcement and the criminal justice system if victims are still being arrested, and it's simply not good enough. Okay, so back to Captain Rackliss' conclusion. This is what he wrote. 
Gabby had a job, but she left it in order to travel the country with Brian. Gabby was trying to start an online career, which Brian didn't support or believe she could accomplish. Brian tried locking Gabby out of the van in an attempt to control her movements. Brian said he was trying to make, in inverted commas, Gabby calm down, and Brian said she was trying to get Brian to stop telling her to calm down. Gabby also said Brian kept telling her to shut up, in inverted commas. Based on the information provided, I can only assume the act of Brian grabbing Gabby's face was his attempt to make, in inverted commas, Gabby calm down, or make, in inverted commas, her shut up. Although the act of grabbing someone's face, like in this case, rarely causes any significant injury, I find that the specific act of grabbing someone's face is extremely personal, violent and controlling. Just because there may have been some signs that Brian was the long-term predominant aggressor, law enforcement can only act on the information they were provided. Okay, so I want to break this segment down. So here he understands that Brian's behaviour was the cause of the problem, particularly controlling Gabby's movements, but he doesn't take it to its natural conclusion, which is that it would be scary for a young woman to be threatened by her angry partner that he was going to leave her there on her own. Also, the act of grabbing someone's face, well, it wasn't just someone's face. It was Gabby's face, 22-year-old petite Gabby. Now, a man doing that to a woman can and does cause serious injury. And it is extremely personal, violent and controlling. That's the intention of the act. That's the motivation. It's a power and control flex. And it's also an assault. There's no mention of that. And to say that there were some signs Brian was the long-term predominant aggressor, but law enforcement can only act on the information they were provided with, is just ridiculous in my opinion. They were given the information by Brian that he assaulted Gabby, and also by Gabby that she was assaulted by Brian, and also by two independent male witnesses. That was the information that they were provided with, and that's what they should have acted upon, in my opinion, and it should have been commented upon within this review and in this conclusion. Captain Ratcliffe continues. Officer Pratt said, We're all doing this with the fact and in our mind that we know what happened later. So it's really convoluted and hard to tell you like anything other than what I thought at the time, which was that if I missed a big red flag that he was a murderer then yes, I missed it. If I would have known he was going to murder her, I would have taken vacation to follow them, because I care about people, to the point where he was going to murder her, and I would have intervened and citizens arrested him in Wyoming. I would have taken my own time. I would have missed my family to go do that. I'm desperately fucked over that she got killed. I really am. I would have done anything to stop it if I would have known that was coming." When speaking with Officer Pratt, I asked him if there is anything else that he thinks I should know or add as it related to this investigation. Officer Pratt said he accepts responsibility for anything that was found that he did wrong in this case. Officer Pratt said, I accept responsibility for it, but I don't want anyone to think that I did not care. I have daughters, and I do want anyone involved to know that I talked to Gabby and I treated Gabby as much like I could, fatherly, the way I want another cop to interact with my daughter, even if he got it wrong, I do care. I'm devastated about it. I care that day and I still care. I don't think the public gets that we... I don't know if they know we care. 
I don't know if they know. Okay, so part of that segment you've heard before about him caring, as that was the lead in many of the news clips. So that really personalises and humanises Officer Pratt, and I do think it's important to hear his voice and that he accepts responsibility. But I still remain unconvinced he understands what the key learning is. He says, if I missed the big red flag that he was a murderer, then yes, I missed it. If I would have known he was going to murder her, I would have taken vacation to follow them because I care about people to the point where he was going to murder her and I would have intervened and citizens arrested him in Wyoming. Well, my point here is that he didn't have to follow them to Wyoming. He had the opportunity to arrest Brian in Utah. And he didn't. He didn't pursue the evidence. He was manipulated by Brian. Now, I don't know when Captain Ratcliffe spoke with Officer Pratt And given the report was published in January, it was some time after the police stop. However, Officer Pratt doesn't appear to have learned much by saying this. He failed in his supervision of a junior officer. He got the basics wrong, including the law. He doesn't seem to get how significant the power imbalance was or the level of control, and that he should be placing more importance on that and Brian's manipulation. And he shouldn't be looking for black eyes and broken bones. And so if there's a Gabby Mark II, God forbid, I doubt at this stage that he would do anything differently. And that's hugely problematic. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean skin loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly. 
allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Also, it reeks a little of poor me syndrome to have his voice in two paragraphs of the conclusion and also the final word in the report on page 98. That seems to be intentional. OK, Captain Ratcliffe's not done yet. Having set it up like this, Captain Ratcliffe continued, There's a lot of speculation regarding this incident, and I can't answer the what-if questions. There were mistakes made in how this case was handled. If this case was handled flawlessly, would it have changed anything? Nobody knows. More and more in law enforcement, perfection is what's being expected, and with that comes officers second-guessing themselves and their decisions. After reviewing all the information and speaking with the officers, I'm confident and comfortable in stating the mistakes that were made were not made intentionally. The officers did not know what they were doing was wrong at the time and did not make the decision to benefit themselves in any way. They both believed at the time they were making the right decision based on the totality of the circumstances that were presented. The Moor Police Department, and specifically Officer Pratt and Officer Robbins, are responsible for their actions, or lack thereof, as it pertains to this investigation. However, I find it difficult to assign responsibility to anyone other than the person or persons directly responsible for Gabby's death, weeks after and several hundred miles away from their August 12th incident in Moab. Okay, deep breath, I'm going to break this down. Before I detail his recommendations because I literally have steam coming out of my ears. The second paragraph about if it were handled flawlessly, would it have made a difference, and he states nobody knows, is a completely moot point. The fact is, the basics were not done right from the start. Standard operating procedures and manuals are there for a reason, to be followed and to be used, and it started badly and it ended badly. And the next point is mind-blowing to me. He wrote, More and more in law enforcement, perfection is what's being expected, and with that comes officers second-guessing themselves and their decisions. Well, that's simply not true in my experience. Perfection is not what's expected from families, or from the wider public, or from anyone with regards to policing. Far from it. In fact, every bereaved family that I've worked with across the years, and there have been many, have always said that they accept that human error happens and mistakes are made. But what they won't accept is where someone has lied to them about what went on and what went wrong, or that there's some form of cover-up, or that there's a whitewash of a review and or no real attempt to learn from their loved one's murder. No one seeks perfection, and it's absurd to say that within the conclusion of this report. It feels disrespectful to Gabby and to her family. Also, it's gaslighting. It's simply not true, and that's not okay. I can't help but wonder and go back to the question of how many cases like this that Captain Ratcliffe has actually reviewed. How many cases that have resulted in a murder and that are this high profile? And what's the basis of this conclusion and the evidence to back it up? For me, the expectation 
Well, thinking about it, it's actually a requirement. The basic requirement is that the police do their damn job. I mean, that's what they're there for after all, right? And to do their job, they must be trained to the required standard. Also, they must be cognizant of their own policies and manuals and laws. And their own policies and manuals and laws must be followed and adhered to. Otherwise, what's the point of them existing in the first place? And yes, a key part of all of this is training, that they need to understand the dynamics of domestic abuse and the power imbalance, at the very least. And they should be aware of the difference between the sexes and how male violence impacts its victims, who are primarily women and girls. And they must have a basic grasp of the fact that given that domestic abuse and coercive control are power and control-related behaviours, while that in and of itself absolutely locates the fact that the perpetrator will try and manipulate the police into believing their narrative. Of course they will. I mean, for me, this is really basic stuff. It's ipso facto. And so for me, it's absolutely not okay to conclude by saying, oh dearie me, the officers did their best. They were nice guys. And okay, they didn't follow the law or our procedures or policies, And they accept responsibility for it, but really the bar's too high regarding standards. I mean, what the hell? Seriously? Writing that in this review? Or any review? That's just not okay. Not when it results in women and children being killed. I mean, have some goddamn perspective and some respect and care and compassion and empathy for Gabby and for her family. And that's what I mean... I feel like Gabby and the grave consequences of the officer's inaction appear to have been lost. So let me be plain. The basics, the very basics, were not done. The 911 caller was never spoken with. They didn't confirm who the van owner was. They didn't check Gabby and Brian's histories. Gabby's name was initially recorded wrong. They didn't recognise that the domestic abuse was ongoing and the problem was Brian's behaviour and that Gabby was acting in self-defence. Brian was never challenged, the man who was identified as the abuser by not one, but two independent male witnesses, and more recently three. I mean, it's unusual to have two, but then to have three independent men saying the same thing? That's why this conclusion is unacceptable. If the basic standard of investigation were met and Gabby were murdered, that would be absolutely horrific. But that's a different conversation that I'd be having. But that's not what happened here. The problem is that the basic things in this case were not done. And as I always say when I'm training the police, get the basics right and the rest will follow. And in my experience, when things go wrong, and I've analysed and reviewed hundreds of those cases, it started badly and it ended badly. And I keep going back to it as I won't be distracted. That is the problem. I'm not going to let them off the hook with this poor me syndrome and this airbrushed and distorted conclusion. The fact that there was misogyny and Brian was believed without question, without challenge, without cooperation, is incredibly problematic and it's not okay. It's even spelled out in their own manual. That's what's wrong. And it's not too much to ask that they're trained to the required standard because it may just save a life. At a very basic level, officers must know that domestic abuse is a power imbalance crime and the perpetrators will try to maintain that power and control when law enforcement attend a call-out and with professionals. 
You must expect it as a bare minimum. And it's certainly not too much of an expectation that an expert delivers training and an expert is brought in to review a case like this. I'm also not comfortable with the final line being about the fact that no one is responsible for Gabby's death other than the person or persons directly responsible. Also, the final line that the murder happened weeks after and several hundred miles away from that August 12th incident in Merb is about creating distance in every respect, and I don't believe that that's helpful here. So a reminder, domestic abuse is about an ongoing pattern and therefore every opportunity to intervene and to do the right thing and help victims must be absolutely maximised, exploited and seized upon. Every opportunity to learn and have an open mind is important and a true learning organisation learns from failure and success and there needs to be transparency and honesty for this to happen and for us to have trust and confidence that this will happen. So now to Captain Rackliff's recommendations. He lists the following, and I'm going to read them out just as he wrote them. 1. Both officers be placed on probation, or if they are still on probation, that probation be extended. 2. A review of Officer Robbins's FTO programme to determine if he needs to complete additional time on-field training. 3. Report writing training, at least 8 hours. 4. Domestic violence investigation-related training, at least eight hours. Five, legal training. In addition to attending legal training to ensure officers understand Utah state laws and statutes, I would suggest building a stronger relationship with your local prosecutors to where, if there are legal questions that officers are unable to answer, that they're able to and feel comfortable with reaching out for additional guidance. 6. A review of the report approval processes previously in place to determine if more checks and balances are needed. 7. A follow-up with X, name is redacted, to obtain his statement, regardless of how long it has been and whether or not his statement may be tainted due to the coverage of this case. 8. A review of the software used to transfer files to reduce the risk of photographic evidence being lost in the future. 9. Overall policy review. Update applicable policy sections to require photographs of injuries be taken of all those involved and require asking medical assistance to all those involved, regardless if they are a suspect or victim. 10. Implement a lethality assessment protocol and policy in all domestic violence cases. Okay, so the issue about the officers being placed on probation and it being extended, well, I've already mentioned that. Officer Pratt has been promoted, and the review of Officer Robbins's FTO programme to determine if he needs additional time in the field, well, yes, but the main problem is that the actual training itself and the training packages on domestic abuse, as well as the supervision programme, need to be updated and there needs to be expert input. Also, making a recommendation of report writing training and domestic violence investigation-related training be at least eight hours long, well, that just seems bizarre to me. And it's totally random. Why eight hours? I mean, what's the point of that? It seems arbitrary. It just feels like Captain Ratcliffe stuck his finger in the air and said, eight hours, that sounds about right. Well, recommendations should be SMARTER. The acronym, you might have heard of it. And that basically means specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, 
and a timeline for implementation. And the last ENR evaluation and review the recommendations being implemented, then that process is continuous. That's what I wrote into the template for domestic homicide reviews in the UK. And I wrote it in because that's best practice when conducting a review of this nature. You see, it's much more relevant to specify the quality and the content of the training required and who it will be delivered by and when, rather than the duration. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Now, for me, the issue is that the officers did not understand domestic abuse and that information was embellished within the report and that key details were missing. And an eight-hour training input on report writing won't fix that. Also, what about all the other officers in Moab? Surely they need training too. And so, yes, I would say that much better training would be required around domestic violence investigations and the power imbalance and the dynamics and what a good investigation looks like, and that should be delivered by an expert, and that there should be joint training that's expert-led, and that police and prosecutors both attend, along with specialists from the domestic violence sector. That encourages, in and of itself, key partnership working, which is exactly what's needed in these cases. And I'm going to come back to that. Now, the recommendation for a review of the report approval process previously in place to determine if more checks and balances are needed, well, that's definitely required. There were no checks and balances in place, no supervision. The supervisor who Officer Pratt called when he was out at the scene was actually on paternity leave at the time. How can that be right? And there's no mention of that within this review as a key point, but clearly there's a major problem going on around supervision. Also, there's no guidance anywhere in the world that says separate a couple at a domestic violence call-out suggests at the end that everything will be okay if they promise not to see each other for the night and if they tell each other that they love each other. No guidance. No guidance that exists for good reason. And let's not forget, just weeks later, Gabby was brutally murdered. That's why it's so important that there are supervisors who are more experienced, who can help guide decisions that are being made and ensure that decisions like that don't happen. Also, recommendation number seven, to obtain a statement from the 911 caller now, is just puzzling. I mean, as I said before, this is shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted, and that's not okay. Recommendation number eight is a review of the software used to transfer files to reduce the risk of photographic evidence being lost in future. Well, this one's puzzling again for me. You see, it's an odd recommendation because this wasn't a problem in this case. The problem was by Officer Robbins' own admission was that he had taken pictures of Brian's injuries, but he simply didn't upload them. And the other issue was that Gabby's injuries were not photographed. That was the problem, and that's what needs attention in future cases. Officers understanding why evidence must be seized and uploaded, and in particular when a female discloses abuse, that her injuries must be photographed too. Number nine is about the overall policy review. And yes, the overall policy should be reviewed by a specialist, and not just the photographs being taken when someone has injuries. The whole policy needs updating, and there should be inclusion of coercive control and non-physical abuse. Recommendation 10 relates to the implementation of a lethality risk assessment protocol and policy in all domestic violence cases. 
Now this, I'd like to know more about what that actually means. It is included in the Domestic Violence 101 manual in Utah, and perhaps Captain Ratcliffe should have read that, and I'm curious as to why there's no mention of the manual too. Also, those who've been listening to me, well, you'll know that I created a risk assessment toolkit called the DASH. It's a risk identification, assessment and management toolkit. And I've spent many years in the risk cave, as I call it. Well, 21 years talking about risk with police and developing a frontline toolkit, as well as effective training and implementing the tool. Again, it comes down to domestic abuse and coercive control experts being involved in this process and rolling out training to support the risk toolkit. You see, this recommendation here, it's one sentence about risk assessment, and it doesn't even go anywhere near the amount of sheer work that's required when implementing a risk model across a police service, and it should be done in partnership with other local agencies. Other local agencies are needed to problem-solve cases with the police. We all need to work together and coordinate our response because no single agency is going to solve the problem of domestic abusers single-handedly. And there's no mention of that in this report. You see, a coordinated problem-solving partnership approach is key, with a laser focus on safety planning with the victim and giving them the best information to make informed choices, as well as a laser focus on proactively problem-solving the person who's the problem, the abuser. You see, this review presented a huge opportunity for change in Gabby's name. However, I doubt very much that the recommendations made will create any real change. They might look good on the surface and on the face of it, but they're one-dimensional and they won't do anything to change culture and attitude and understanding and that's hugely problematic because cultural change is urgently needed. And it is a leadership issue. Male violence is a leadership issue and domestic abuse must be a priority. I say that over and over and over again. And with that in mind, Merb, please, I recommend the following. One, every officer, including the chief and the senior management team, should receive specialist training about strangulation, including training about the act of strangulation and suffocation, the power imbalance, and the law in Utah. And I'd recommend that Merb police seek expert support from the Strangulation Prevention Institute. Two, every officer should receive specific training that is expert-led in risk assessment and investigations. Three, every officer should receive trauma-informed training, including trauma-informed interviewing techniques. Four, every officer receive training about how to identify the predominant physical aggressor. 5. Every officer received training in forensically deconstructing coercive control, how to identify it, victimology and victims' behaviour, and the psychology of the abusers. 6. When there's a call-out to domestic violence cases, that the dispatch must be trained to provide information to the officers and that they ask the right questions about what's going on and about risk. 7. The creation of domestic violence response teams to respond to domestic violence call-outs and that there's a specialist advocate present to talk with the victim and ascertain exactly what's gone on. 8. I recommend the coercive control law so that coercive control is understood and that law has the power imbalance at the heart of it. We have to update and modernise laws to reflect women's experience of abuse and non-physical abuse and that the pattern, the totality, is taken into account. 9. 
I would also recommend that Utah's law based on the predominant physical aggressor be amended to include things like a history of abuse, physical or non-physical, including coercive control, the level of violence, non-fatal strangulation, including hands around the mouth, jaw and throat, and the height and weight of each person, the presence or absence of fear and corroborating evidence. And 10. One other thing that Utah should consider is a family justice centre where victims can be assessed and referred to one place and receive all the support and services under one roof. That's best practice. And that's my starter for 10. And they're not the only recommendations, but they're the key ones in this case. And of course, these recommendations look very different to Captain Ratcliffe's recommendations. And I would also put a timeline in for when those things will be delivered. But of course, that's not in my gift to make it happen. But I would quite happily advise and help Merb City Police should they ask. To conclude my analysis of the police report and review, and yes, yes, it's been very detailed, and I really do thank you all for riding shotgun with me on this important journey. And I also, just before I wrap this episode, want to share another context that's important. The Utah Domestic Violence Coalition state that they're committed to, and I quote, create a state where domestic and sexual violence are not tolerated. Well, what I will say is that there's a long way to go for this to happen, particularly regarding the police and partner agencies. And the challenge is taking the first step, admitting you have a problem and that you need help. The second is taking action and bringing in the right experts to help. For me, early identification and intervention are vital to homicide prevention. Every police call-out is an opportunity for homicide prevention. That's how seriously domestic abuse and coercive control and the abusers, the domestic abusers and coercive controllers, must be taken. That's not stated in this review. It's a huge oversight and it needs stating. The police and others should aspire to this and use best practice. There's a lot of it out there and all my work is accessible and available as am I. And like I said, there are many of us, including me, trying to help you raise the bar. So my advice to Merb City Police Department is to grab that help with both hands in Gabby's name. I really hope this has been of help and value. Let me know on all the socials. Let me know what you think. And like I said, I've spent more time on the police review. It's important for me. I want people to learn and I want to help. I want colleagues to get better and we can only improve by having an honest conversation about what went wrong. That's why reviews are so important and reviews that don't detail what really happened and are not conducted by experts, they're highly problematic in my opinion because nothing changes. Law enforcement may get the heat taken away from them for a time, but they won't learn and they won't change. And it won't help the next domestic violence victim. And this hasn't been an easy process for me either. I'm exhausted. I've been in Gabby's case for more than a year. It's upsetting and it's challenging. And Gabby's case is still ongoing. And if it's like that for me, imagine what it must feel like for her family. But like I always say, being true to my process as a crime analyst, I never know where a case will take me. I don't know what I'll uncover along the way until I read all the documents. And it is like peeling an onion. The search for truth is never easy. And sometimes people try and hide what really went on. 
So I'm letting you know it takes a huge amount of time and energy to go through everything with a laser focus. But as you'll hear me say over and over again, the devil is in the detail. And who does it serve not to get to the truth, not to uncover the nuanced detail and context of what went on? And so I really hope Moa Police and other police departments take note. The stakes are high. Women and children deserve better, and this report does not cut it, quite frankly. Women and children's lives are literally in your hands. It's also worth underlining, just as I wrap, that this episode is dropping across October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So here are a number of questions for you. Having heard all that I've had to say thus far, all my detailed analysis, what are you pledging to do or change to help domestic abuse victims and survivors? What are you going to do to challenge the status quo? What are you going to do to hold abusers to account? This is the active part. Don't be a bystander. Be on the right side of this. Take the first step. Be a leader, whoever you are and wherever you are. You can be a role model. Do better. Be better. And I'm here if you need training or advice. Just ask. In fact, I've just confirmed new masterclass training dates for the beginning of 2023 for Dash and also Train the Trainer, as well as a number of coercive control masterclasses. So if you're interested in that, if you want to take the first step, email amanda at laurarichards.co.uk. If you want more information and you want to be trained by moi, it would be an absolute pleasure to work with you. So I'm going to wrap there and just let you know that my next episode on Gabby's case will be the last for now. I'm also well aware that new footage of Gabby and Brian has been released and I want to share my thoughts and analysis about that as well as an analysis of the timeline and I want to revisit Gabby and Brian's Instagram once more, as I said I would. So until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. <laughs>